Welcome to the Outdoor Country Talk Podcast, hosted by Jacob Poole and Jeremy Shaw, where we bring country living and the great outdoors together. Welcome back to another episode of Outdoor Country Talk with Jake and Jeremy. Now, y'all folks today, anybody that listens to us normal, you know normally it's me and Jeremy both on here. He was still duck hunting today and could not get back in time to make this recording, so it's just me and our guest today. Knowing normally we move in and we kind of talk about the weather, we talk about some local topics. Well, today I've got a local guy, so we're going to skip local topics and we're going to just get to our local guy. We have Mr. Travis Murray with Murray Landon Homes with us today. Mr. Travis, how are you today? I'm doing fine, Jacob. Good to be with you. And folks, if y'all don't know, Travis is out of Crosby, Mississippi. He is actually... I'm not sure if he claims being related to me or not, but he actually, I know he claims being related to my in-laws. So through marriage, we are, we are related. So whether he owns up to that or not, that's, that's on him. Well, we do. We, we claim y'all. <laughs> Most people claim my lovely bride way before they claim me. So it's all, <laughs> it doesn't hurt my feelings even a little bit, but the, uh, Travis, for folks that don't know you and, and folks that listen to our podcast, you know, we always try to bring y'all something new or something different and, and trying to bring folks on that have really good personalities and have really good stories. And I'm going to say I kind of cheated on this one. I've known Travis for a while. I've known a good bit or a little bit about kind of his hunting style and some of the things he does. But I actually listened to another podcast that you recently did the other night and when i heard it i said oh i gotta get him on ours i I need that story so that our listeners could hear it and you know not being in any competition with anybody else but you know the other podcast was a really good listen to so if y'all hear this one and you want to hear more because i'm going to touch on some of the same topics but going to kind of drift around some into some other areas also but travis what was the uh who was that that you recorded the podcast with the other day it was a uh, Southern Outdoor Talk, and they're a group out of Alabama. Okay. And uh, and you know, like I said before, my memory is not the best in the world, and I have I'm not a podcast guy. It's the first podcast I ever did. I didn't really understand the format, um, so I just you know kind of did the same thing I'm gonna have to do with you. I'm just gonna have to talk. That's well, you know I'm, I'm I'm not up on the podcast. Well, well, that's kind of the whole point of the podcast. But uh, now, Travis, I, I told you before we got on here that we've been doing this for a little while, but I'm not going to tell you that I even understand or that we understand the, the format. I don't know if there's a particular format that we're supposed to follow or if it's just kind of just kind of go with the flow is what we like. So we, we've kind of made our own format and it works for us. So we're, we're going to keep on rocking and rolling with it if that's all right with you. That works for me. I am definitely a go-with-the-flow guy. Well, from listening to the other podcasts and from knowing you and, and talking with you in the past and here recently, you have a different style of deer hunting than most of our, I mean, man, would I be out of the realm to say probably 99% of the deer hunters in this area? Uh, I, I don't, I've never, I don't run into many other people that hunt very similar to me. Uh, I know a few, but they usually do a few things differently. Well, I'm going to say this from, from knowing you and from listening and learning a little bit more about this, 
your style is traditional in the most traditional sense. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, a ghillie is kind of a ghillie suit, is, which is probably my preferred way to hunt. Is I wouldn't, it's, you know, the ancestors and the old timers certainly had something like it, but, you know, I, it is old school, but, you know, I'm not, I saw, I saw a post from the other show that I did and someone was saying, you know, he makes his own arrows and makes his own bows and all this. That's, that's not true. What I, you know, I'm using traditional bows, but they're very good traditional bows made by very good craftsmen that make bows. Okay. And you know, a ghillie suit is modern. So in a way I am very old school, but I'm using some things that are, you know, I, I'm definitely not out there shooting a self bow. Okay. Well, I know I've got a friend that each year, and, and I say that each year, several years back for a couple of years in a row, anytime I killed a turkey, he wanted the fe- certain feathers off that turkey and he was making his own arrows and he was actually using the turkey feathers for his fletchings. Mm-hmm. Now, do you go to that extreme or, or do you, do you buy arrows from a, a certain place? Well, the, the way that works is I went through a phase about 20 something years ago. I've always had enormous respect for the true primitive hunters that would go out there and they, they make their own bow. They make their own string. They make their own arrows. They even chip their own broadheads. True primitive. And I went through a phase of that, oh, probably 20 years ago or so. And I made my own bow, made my, I did everything. True primitive. I even chipped out my own broad head that was not very pretty, but it was effective. <laughs> and I managed to kill a couple of does doing that. And I got away from that for, for one reason is while I have nothing but respect for that, it is extremely time consuming. And I wound up working on things in the shop, arrows and fletchings. I did more of that than being in the woods hunting. So I reverted back to, I buy, I I like carbon arrows. Of course, they're kind of traditional oriented. They're heavy. So I, I tend to occasionally I'll go on a kick and I'll make some turkey feather fletchings. I can do that, but I tend to use modern ingredients, especially for arrows, simply because I can either be in the shop working on things like that, or I can be out in the woods. And I, I kind of had to pick a poison. Well, kind of, kind of get to paint our, 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 a picture here for our, our listeners. And look, folks, if you see once we post it online, you're going to see some pictures that'll kind of help you paint a better picture of what we're talking about here. But, you know, a ghillie suit, and Travis kind of explained to everybody what a ghillie suit is in case anybody doesn't know. Well, a ghillie suit is really designed. It was a, a lot of a lot of ghillie suits were actually military. Our snipers, our military snipers, have used them for quite some time, and it breaks up the human form. And it does it for deer. It does it for humans, other humans. I've been in my ghillie suit and had my uncles and some of my family pull up in a truck, and I was just in the bushes a few yards away, and you know. If I wouldn't have said something, they would have never known I was there. I'm going to bet you about give somebody a heart attack. 
I, I, I try not to, but what you can, the, the ghillie suit is ruthless. It's the reason it's Marine, Marines use them for a reason in the military. They are ruthlessly effective. They are ruthlessly effective on deer. Um, so it's basically military technology. And I started using them a long time ago and went through a terrible learning curve with them. They're, they're clumbersome. They're, they're a pain to deal with, honestly, but used correctly. And once you learn how to use them, especially trimming them up, because as they, when, if you go buy a ghillie suit and put it on and go try to hunt with it, you better have your insurance up to date because you're, you're going to be tripping. <laughs> you're going to be falling. You have to trim it to where you can use it. And the first thing I do with any ghillie suit that I get is everything from the knee down is gone. That stops most of the tripping. And of course, if you're a bow hunter, you have to trim up around the chest area and the arm, to keep your string from snagging. Um, and, and so a, a ghillie suit is, it's a pain in the neck, but there's nothing else like it. And it, it can't solve your, it can't solve the scent problem. It can't solve a lot of problems. What it can do, unlike anything else, is break up the human form and allow you to get away with with things you just can't get away with without a ghillie suit. Well, I'm going to guess that it allows you to get away with more motion exactly. than you would without a suit. Because I know it does. I wear a leaf suit when I turkey hunt, and, and I know there's, that's two completely different things, and a leaf suit's nowhere near as effective as a ghillie suit, but it's lighter, it's easier to move around in, especially for turkey season, when there's more foliage on trees and, you know, different types of the year, too. But I know it allows me to sit, and I can, I can sit down with it on, and I, I look like a little bush. And the ghillie suit has got to be the nth degree even further than that, where you can just about disappear completely if you don't move a lot. You can, and you can move. The, the secret to it is you, you can you know, I've had deer within yards of me and you can move. You've just got to move slowly. And if you pique their interest, you freeze and stop. Whereas without the ghillie suit, if they catch some movement and they stare at you, they'll make out that human form and it's, well, you know, it's over. Same thing with a turkey. Being in the woods, I run into turkeys a lot and, you know, turkeys, I've had, I've had, I had a hen one evening turkey hunting and she was just literally, I, I could have almost reached out and grabbed her by the neck. And she just really didn't, she put that eye on me occasionally. But breaking up the human form is powerful in the woods. It, it really is. Well, and to go along with that, y'all, as you listen to this, you're going to figure out that Travis isn't wearing that ghillie suit 20 foot up a tree. He's wearing that ghillie suit on the ground in their domain with a traditional boat. So you're adding more and more. Look, I got so excited listening to that podcast today and then going back through, you know, some of the things you and I've talked about or stuff I've seen on your social media. It kind of reminded me of a kid or of being a kid. Kind of took me back to when, you know, you had a little red bow that may have had 15, 20 pounds on it, a little old air, and, you know, you couldn't have, you couldn't have made a group if you tried, but you were out trying to catch an old squirrel or, or something else, you know, just something you could bring home and show mama did. And the more I listened to it, I was like, oh, he has gone way back to almost 
you know, when, when settlers first hit this continent type of traditional hunting that I had, man, we had to talk. It was like, nope, I got, I got to hear this more and, and pick some more questions because you had me almost wanting to go buy a ghillie suit the other evening. So I don't know if ghillie suit sales are about to go up, but. Uh, well, I would interject that the, the first point you brought up is absolutely. I would strong, don't go up a ladder stand. Don't do anything off the ground in a ghillie suit. It's just not safe. It tends to snag and pull on things. Ghillie suits are not for climbing stands. They're not for ladder. I, I wouldn't even, I mean, why would you want to wear one in a box stand? They are strictly for ground hunting. I cannot think of any other use. As far as the feeling of what you just described, which was very well stated, you pretty much pegged my whole view on hunting. And uh, I'll go back to a post that I saw on Facebook after the first podcast I did and people were talking and, and somebody commented that he sure had apparently they saw my quiver in one of the air in the pictures and he said he sure does carry a lot of arrows that goes back to what you were talking about is I rarely I, I do tend to carry a quiver and it does tend to have a lot of arrows in it in that quiver you will find all sorts of arrows because I'm in the woods and I might, if it's legal to take a rabbit and I get a chance at a rabbit, I may pull one of my little blunts out and take me a rabbit. I may try a squirrel. I usually lose the arrow doing that, but, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. So I'm prepared when I go out for most anything that I encounter. I'm not just, you know, I'm, I'm truly out there in the woods trying to fall in and become part of nature and I've, I've intercepted foxes that I've taken with blunts. I've, um, I've killed coyote. I've killed a lot of coyotes. So I truly am out there just in the woods with a barrage of different arrows for different occasions. Well, you're going back to being a true hunter, not just a deer hunter. You're just being a hunter. You're enjoying right. being at nature at one with nature and. You know, I mean, there's nothing, you know, you and I talked before we got on here, there's nothing I enjoy more than turkey hunting. To me, it's about as primitive. If you're not sitting up waiting on one by a decoy or, you know, in some states you can hunt near a feeder, you know, it's you and that bird. It's a one-on-one. -on -one. But you've also got to beat every other thing in the woods. Because you spook a deer while you're after a turkey, you probably just lost a turkey. You get a bunch of crows kicking up at you, or you get jet birds squawking at you, or squirrels flare off. You know, you you've got to you got to have some woodsmanship. And you and I talked about that earlier. Woodsmanship is a thing that's I'm not going to say a thing of the past, but it's a thing that we're losing if people don't start getting back to it. I can love I love to go spend all day in the woods. I'm talking about daylight to dark, before daylight after dark. I don't get to do it as much as I used to because of life and kids and everything else. And I said life, not wife. But, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where it takes you back to your childhood. It takes you back to when you used to be able to roam and you were, you know, just doing the things and not having a whole lot else going on other than just doing that. And that's, that's right up my alley. I mean, if I could spend all day doing, if I ever figure out how to make a living doing that, 
nobody's going to see me. I'll be that little hermit guy. Now, I may still do podcasts. They can hear me talk, but, you know, I'm, they won't have to see me in person that often. Well, I'm very lucky in that I do almost do that. And, you know, we uh, we don't just sell hunting and fishing land, but we, you know, we also do property management. You know, earlier today, I, I didn't get to hunt. I hunted a little right at lunch. It wasn't serious. I just kind of went out playing around. But, you know, this morning I was doing some property management and I was out in the woods looking at a client's property, trying to design some food plots and some stands for it. So I'm about as close to that being able to make a living in the woods as you can get. And I thank God for it every day. There's one trait that you're going to find in every one that you find to be a good woodsman. And that's what you touched on earlier. They love being in the woods because at the end of the day, there's nothing inherently different from me than anyone else other than I've just spent a lot of time in the woods and I love it. And I've kind of learned some things that make me a little more successful than if I just go out there willy nilly. Well, I had a guy ask me a while back. He said, you know, how much time do you spend scouting? And I'm like, all the time. He said, what do you mean all the time? Like, even when I'm hunting, I'm scouting. I see a new scrape. I see a new rub. I've noticed a new trail. You know, I mean, I'm constantly on the look all the time. And I get as much enjoyment out of scouting preseason as I do actually harvesting something. And that's something that as I've gotten older, I've started enjoying more to where I always did it as a kid, but it was for a mission. You know, I was going to, I was going to get something this is what i was here for you know i had spotted one and i was trying to figure out where his domain was now i'm scouting all the time because my kids are trying to you know they want to i want my kids to be successful so we have limited time so i'm trying to take them where i think they're going to get the best opportunity to be able to see something so i spend more scouting when i'm not going to be anywhere near a gun than i do when i'm actually behind a gun and that's the reason you're a good woodsman is because first it comes from the love of the outdoors and then it comes from the the hunger to learn not just not just be out in the woods because a lot of people like to go out for a picnic and be in the woods the the turkey hunter in you the deer hunter the hunter in you makes you want to learn and i've always had that and i never stopped learning i learned i learned some things this morning the piece of property I'll go look at tomorrow, I'm going to learn some things because no two pieces of land are exactly the same. And the preseason is certainly important, but I get a lot out of after the season is over because that's just, you know, that's, that's when I really start chasing pigs is when deer season's over. So I'm in the woods and I notice, I notice things and after season, is very good for scouting because you see in preseason, you see what the deer are doing when they have no pressure, when, you know, before the gun starts booming and they start feeling that the pressure of hunting season. After, right after season, you're looking at what they're doing during the, you know, with the pressure on. And so I really enjoy my time right after season the, the only time that I, when I spend the least amount of time in the woods every year is the really heat of the summer. The older I get 
and I'm still out shooting my bow every day and, and I go in the woods and I show land and I do things, but I, you know, I'm certainly not out walking three, four miles a day in the woods, scouting, looking, learning in July as I do in the fall and in the winter. Oh, I agree. No, I'm usually in June, July, we've, we've gotten so wrapped up in ball for the kids or something that, you know, we've got other things that are taking precedence at that time. I kind of let the animals rest and, you know, kind of give it a little breather. And, and now going back, let's drop back a little bit. When we first got on here, we were saying that you do things a little different. Kind of mm-hmm. walk everybody through. You hunt a ghillie suit. You're using a traditional bow. You're on the ground. Kind of walk everybody through, say, a normal hunt for you. Well, there is no normal hunt, um, <laughs> but my and, – and basically I have two styles of hunting. I will hunt in a hide, which is a and, – and right if I were to go hunting now, I am pretty much have to use a hide because the only time I can really use the ghillie suit is there's one downside to a ghillie suit is this. You can really only use it effectively during the very early bow season. Once gun season opens up, the orange law kicks in and you, you know, you would be illegal slipping around in a ghillie suit. And I like to hunt public land a lot. So I honestly wouldn't want to be slipping around in a ghillie suit on public land without orange anyway. Well, and so thank you. So right now my hunting would, would amount to a hide, which is basically a natural ground blind. But if we're going to go back to the original of the ghillie in early season, I do not wear the ghillie. I keep it in a box. I keep it, or actually it's kind of a a bag-like thing that I keep it in. Because a ghillie is not fun to wear. You don't want to be sitting around in a ghillie. It's just no fun. And I basically get as clean as I humanly can, use unscented everything, and then I smoke up. I use my scent control technique, which is to waft myself in, in smoke. I have a kind of a, a certain procedure I do there. And I waft the ghillie suit in the smoke too, not wearing it. That's important. <laughs> and then I don't put it on till I'm actually, I'm going to ease into where I'm going to hunt and say I'm, I've got a bedding area in mind where I think some deer bed. I'll get to where I'm seriously hunting. And then I'll slip on the ghillie suit. It won't take, it's a 30 second procedure there. The one I have is very easy to put on and off. And I get in the ghillie suit and I try to immediately just let the wood settle. I move very carefully. If I break a stick or make any kind of noise, I just immediately stop and freeze for several minutes. And I generally just work my way around the edge of that bedding. Now, I've had, and I do it very slowly, very particularly, and that, the, the pace and all those things depends on terrain, how thick it is. There's so many variables, but that's the general overview. And the reason I focus on the bedding area is just simple practicality, is if I slip around the edges of a food plot or a food source, the deer are going to be much more on alert. And they probably probably won't be there till almost dark. 
The reason I focus on bedding areas is I don't know another place to regularly intercept a mature buck during daylight. If you're not near his bed, you know, you're probably not going to, unless the rut, now during the rut kind of changes things, but I'm never in a ghillie suit during the rut because I can't be because of the orange law. Yeah. So I'm in the ghillie suit. I'm always hunting early season deer that are kind of in the late summer pattern. So your hunt is not a ghillie suit sit up and wait most of the time. You're, if I'm understanding this right, you're stalking pretty much from the time you put the suit on to the time you come out. Exactly. If I'm if I'm going to be in a hide, which that's that's traditional terminology for a ground blind. The difference between a hide and, say, a pop-up ground blind is a hide is usually made out of natural vegetation. That's what I tend to like to use. Now, pop-up ground blinds are very effective, and I have used them, and they they work if used correctly. But I just call them hides. If I'm in a natural ground blind or a pop-up ground blind, then I'm probably not going to be wearing a ghillie. You know, um, it's just the, the ghillie, if you're not moving around and being so, at least semi-mobile, you're probably better off without it. Because if you build a blind correctly, you really don't need it. Well, that's part of what got me intrigued because I'm almost to the point to where I, if I don't have a kid in the stand, I don't want to sit for hours. And I know it's horrible to say, but I'm just... You know, there's so much things going on that I need to be doing something else. Turkey mm-hmm. hunting, I'm rarely ever still. He gobbles, I'm on the move. Mm-hmm. You know, whether I'm running, walking, belly crawling, whatever I've got to do to get in the position where I think I've got the chance to either sweet talk him over to me or get around where he's trying to go. You know, last year I was able to take one. I looked and he was on a pipeline and I yelped at him and he wanted nothing to do with me. He mm-hmm. wouldn't, he wouldn't going away from me fast, but I was like, that sucker is steadily walking away from me. Well, I knew where the road came around and I said, you know what? I got running. So when I tell you, I slipped out and then dropped turkey vest and had nothing but shotgun and took off on a dead sprint for about a quarter mile, which at 43, I don't <laughs> do very often anymore, but I got ahead of him on that pipeline and waited. And yelped at him about two more times. And that, I guess there was another hen somewhere that I just hadn't seen, but that was the one he was going to. And when I yelped at him, all of a sudden he, you know, I mean, he went full draw and, and blew up and went to drumming and here he come in. And it was like, oh, now we got our show. But had I not outrun him, you know, and there's sometimes where you're belly crawling, but stalking around to me is just, I mean, like I said earlier, it takes me back to my childhood when I was trying to slip up on something and I probably didn't have a chance of slipping up. And I'm guessing that you bump in, you, how often do you bump deer? You know, do you, do you normally upset very much or not upset very much? Kind of, kind of tell me a little bit about that. Well, that's an interesting subject because when I first started hunting with a ghillie suit, I was a disaster and I really, I didn't, I, I at, at that point, I figured out that bedding areas is where you would see a mature buck. I figured out bedding areas before I really learned the ghillie suit thing. And so I knew what I needed to do, but I was such a disaster getting in there 
that it just didn't work for quite a while. I mean, my learning curve was pretty severe. I mean, that's just all there is to it. And now I'm a very different person because I have used the ghillie suit for over 20 years now. And it's just like anything else in life. The more you do it, you, you make mistakes, you learn, you, you, you modify things. I rarely upset deer. And, and actually the, the term I call it is staying at peace with the rents. And that's my own term. And what I mean by that is a wren and other salt thrashers, squirrels, crows, all of those will tell you if you're doing it wrong. If you're in the woods and you're trying to hunt in a ghillie suit or not in a ghillie suit and you're moving around and you're in the woods and you're regularly upsetting those critters, you're doing something wrong and you're, you're not going to be effective. So I call that staying at peace with the wrens. And I have gotten pretty good at staying at peace with the wrens. The, the biggest secrets to it, number one, the ghillie suit allows you to if you attract attention with noise, it allows you to pass visual inspection. If you freeze, I, I've had deer, I've had turkeys, I've had a lot of critters that I would make a noise or I would do something and they look to see what's there. And I would just sit there and freeze. And you can get away with murder. Whereas if I didn't have, even if I had on good camera, they might make out enough form that that's game over. So I don't bump a lot of deer. My my scent program, I'm very confident in it. I try to play the wind as best I can. But between my scent control strategy and the way that I the way that I approach being in the woods, I I've I can't it's been years since I've had a doe run off stomping and blowing it. That just doesn't hardly happen anymore. Well, back up right there just a second now. You said that you you build a fire and you waft smoke over yourself and over all your gear. Mm-hmm. How far are you from where you're planning to hunt? How big of a fire? And how often do you do that? Say you're going to be out all day long. And that's a common scenario. Not so much now. I, I don't I don't hunt nearly as fiercely as I used to. But back in the days. A few years ago when I would leave at daylight and I would hunt from daylight all the way till dark, I would, I, I, you're not going all over the woods building fires. I would start, it doesn't take much of a fire at all. I carry a little lighter with me and I would start a little fire. If you're anywhere near the bedding area or where you want to be hunting, you don't want to do this. So as soon as I'm somewhere that I'm not going to contaminate myself again, you know, if I've got to get in my Jeep and drive to one of the one of the places I hunt that I'm going to get in the vehicle, I'm going to do it after I get there and get out of the vehicle, right close to the vehicle. Okay. And I'm going to build a very small fire. I'll get a little, I'll get a little thing about as maybe a double handful of leaves, straw, anything natural. And and you know sometimes that's I've been out where it was difficult to come up with enough dry stuff to build a fire. I mean, that happens. Like right now, everything's damp. But usually you can, if you get inventive, you can find something. And I just start that and I let a good flame start. And we're talking about a small fire here. 
and then I'll usually find something green, pine needles, something to make cedar ball, anything, and I'll just drop on it, and it's going to put that flame out. And then you're going to have this thick white smoke come up, and that's what I use. So when you drop something green on it and you put the flame out, you get way more smoke. And it, you don't have to sit there and, you know, it, it, I do my hair. If it's not, if it's possible, I usually take my shirt off and waft as much of my body as possible. Then I'll put on the t-shirt and I just do it as best I can. If I'm hunting all day, I'll probably do it again around lunch and then hunt till dark. But it's not something you have to do constantly. Now, if you, you know, if it's, if it's early season and you work up a good sweat, it, that's certainly not good. But honestly, something about that smoke really goes a long way. I mean, it's, and I won't say that deer never smell me because that's just not the case, but it's almost like they get a whiff of something and they think I'm further away than I am. I don't know if that makes any sense, but they don't react the same way as if I don't have it. Well, I'm wondering they if they just don't they don't seem to react as harsh when I'm smoked up. I don't know if it if it keeps enough of the bacteria down that they're just getting little tiny whiffs of human odor or exactly what the mechanism is, but I promise you it it would you know, it would change the way I hunt without it. I would my success rate would go from low to almost nothing. Well, and Travis, from listening to the other podcast, you told on there that you learned that from a really neat source. Yes, yes. I learned that from an old Yaki Indian out in the Sierra Nevadas. And he was just doing what, you know, Indians did that all the time. And so it's not anything rocket science. It's just kind of an old tradition that honestly was kind of forgotten. I think... I think smoking up for cover scent was actually back probably in the 1800s in the early formation of this country. I bet it was quite popular because it it works. Well, you know, you think back then there was no electricity. Everybody had a fire. So you were around, right. you were around fire more, you were around smoke more. So it probably wasn't something they really had to go out of their way to do is – you know, just go kind of stand near the, you know, not near the cooking fire because you don't want that smell on you. But, you know, when I listened to that the other night, it kind of made me go back to my childhood some. And I know that now it's taboo. But, you know, back when I was growing up, I'm sure back when you were growing up, too, all the old men that used to hunt with us all smoked mm-hmm. cigarettes. And I'm not saying run out and smoke cigarettes, but I always wondered how they could sit in a deer stand and smoke cigarettes one after the other and still kill deer. Right. And I'm still not convinced that that's a very, uh, certainly I'm, I'm, I'm not a smoker. And I no, I mean, and I'm not a proponent I, for smoking, but it, it kind of, that hit me the other night. And I was like, you know, one of the biggest deer my daddy ever killed was sitting on the stump smoking a cigarette and a deer walked up within 50 yards of him. It wasn't spooked mm-hmm. at him at all. And it was all luck because he had gotten tired and sat down. So I mean, it was just being in the right place at the right time. But, you know, as I got older, I was like, you know, how did this, how did, they had to smell him, but I don't know if it was just the curiosity. It wasn't something that spooked them, but it made them actually a little more curious. That I don't know, but I do know that old men, you know, uh, one of my uncles, Uncle Woodrow Day, he always had those 
he had some kind of pipe tobacco that smelled. It didn't even smell like it was sweet. You probably you probably remember that. Mm-hmm. And you know he was he was always puffing on that old pipe, and he was a woodsman, and he killed. You know he was he was a duck hunter. He he loved hunting. He loved being in the woods, and he killed his share of deer out there puffing on a pipe. So I don't, you know. I know my method the way I do is the only thing I've found because I tried the, and I don't want to put any stink on any kind of commercial product. I, you know, I tried scent lock and I tried some of that other stuff and I actually found some of it to be somewhat effective if used properly, but I didn't find anything that worked as good as just simply getting clean and smoking up. And honestly, I've used smoking up a lot. Like I'd come in, after work and I couldn't get a shower. I couldn't use unscented soap and I smoked up and it still was pretty effective. In my opinion, smoke is a very effective scent control strategy. Well, it's something that happens in nature. It is. So I guess, you know, they're, they're more accustomed to it. It doesn't send them quite on high alert the way, you know, a lot of And I don't even think that it's smoke is a cover scent. I think what smoke ultimately does is it, the same reason when you smoke sausage or, or deer meat or something, it lasts is smoke is a bacterial, it, it kills bacteria. So when you get, you know, smoke keeps you from producing bacteria. And that's what ultimately the deer are smelling. I think, I think that that is the reason it's so effective is that it's antibacterial properties. Well, moving on from the smoke here, what... And this is another thing that had me intrigued the other night. You're on the ground, you're in your suit, you're smoked up, you're scent covered, using a traditional bow, which is different. I use a compound bow half for years. I shot a traditional bow in college to try to, uh, we had the forestry conclaves and that was one of the events. And I was like, oh, I've shot a bow my whole life. I can shoot. Yeah, I wasn't that good with it. I, I didn't wind up competing for us at Mississippi State. Uh, they they let me swing the axe because I had done that a lot as a child. So I, I was th- that was where I was competent at. I was not competent in the the traditional bow shooting. But what is an average shot? Because I'm guessing your your shots you, you're not standing up. You're not coming to. It's not going to be the same. The draw the. What is a normal yardage for most of your shots? If you had to pin it down, and I've, I've, I'll, I'll ask another question that I've heard asked to me a lot, and I'll give you the answer to that because that'll kind of give you my mindset. Is I've had people say, "How far is too close?" In other words, does a deer, if I can get him at two yards, I want him at two yards. There's no such thing as too close. Now, that, of course, that doesn't happen. But my average shot, I have, if, when I look back over deer that I've killed with a traditional bow, which is quite a few. The very longest is a little over 25, 26 steps. That is, that's a long way for me. And I'm pretty competent out to there. I'm, you know, and, and this gets into deep water because it's hard to understand. But when you shoot a bow a lot, you will get to the point that when you draw, you know whether your mental you know if everything's right. And over time, a lot of times I've drawn on deer that were, and, and the arrow just wouldn't slip through my fingers. Something something wasn't right 
I didn't I didn't have that green light for it to release because I don't think about releasing. It just happens. And as I've shot so much over the years, it's got to the point that generally if something's off, it just never the arrow's never released. I, I snag. I call it snagging. And if I snag, something's wrong and I would have probably made a bad shot. That said, most of them are twelve to fifteen yards. But now I've killed a lot of deer at five, six, seven yards from really? it's usually does or smaller bucks. A, a big buck is just a different animal. And you know, the, the, the mature bucks that I've killed have certainly been a further distance than a lot of the does and, and smaller bucks that I've killed. But if I had to narrow it down, I'd say 12 to 15 yards is a typical range. And see, 12 to 15 yards with a compound bow to me is almost too close because he's almost going to be under my stand where I don't get the shot that I want. But you're on the ground with him. Mm-hmm. I'm going to guess most time on a knee or squatted down. I have shot everywhere, and that's the other that's the other advantage of a traditional bow is I have killed I killed a doe and I, I should have mounted that deer even though she's a doe but I was and I practiced this but I was laying flat on my belly in a grown up field and I was able to get an arrow out she was about twelve yards away and I was able to get a good arrow in her laying flat on my belly. So that's the other, it, you're a compound shooter, so you understand if you, you're not going to shoot a compound off your belly. You're not going to shoot it hunched over in a thicket sitting Indian style well. I've never even um, thought of trying. What made right. you even try that shot? You know, just out of curiosity, I mean, that's a, it's not in the norm, which uh, I guess you, you, you have, like you say, you got more flexibility with a traditional bow than you would a compound bow. So there's, there's a different norm, I guess. Well, I've, I love shooting bows. I, I, I've shot, I shot compounds for many years too. I've never given up traditional. They've always been my first love, but I had compounds and I killed a lot of deer with compounds and I hunt completely different with a compound than I do a traditional bow. But I do a lot of just stump shooting. I'll go out and I mean, I did that today before I talked to you. I had been out just wandering around. You know what my house looks like. You've been here. Mm-hmm. And I was out in those trees out across from my house and I was just out shooting leaves, sticks, stumps, whatever with a judo point. And I've shot off my belly. I've shot, I've, I've, I've do everything. And I, it's just because I love shooting bows and I've had to shoot rabbits and other things almost getting down under the thickets to shoot them up in the thickets so it's just you know i've I've had some places that i had to get and when i say laying on my belly i mean i was laying on my belly and now can i shoot as good like that as i do you know in a more standard position no my maximum range at that doing that is about 15 yards whereas if i'm in a more normal position say sitting indian style or on one knee then you know i'm out i'm good i'm I'm generally pretty good out to about 25 yards well see you've got my interest peak so big with this that i'm i, I may have to go order or, or go find a traditional bow just to start playing with this evening because <laughs> 
I mean, you're, I know I've said this several times, but you're taking me back to childhood. And I'm guessing anybody else that's listening to this is going to think back if they grew up the same way that we did. I mean, walking around shooting sticks and leaves, there's no telling how many little errors I launched at things over the years growing up. Mm -hmm. You know, that now, you know, with kids living in suburbs and, you know, different cities and stuff, they don't get the opportunity to do. But if you're a country kid and somebody buys you a little, you know, it was a red bow. I think it was an Indian bow back then. And that was that was first thing I had too. Is mine was kind of yellowish, little fiberglass, cheap bow, had the little arrows, and I mine was I shot red. that thing to my fingers bled. Yeah, I mean, mine was well. That was the first time I ever used finger tabs. Uh, and you also that was one of the first bows that you learned that the string will beat your forearm up if you are not careful where you put your hand. It will. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it would it would whip you and leave one heck of a mark on your forearm. I'm right-handed, so my left forearm might be eat up. Because remember, they used to give you, I don't know if they did when you were coming, but they gave you that little pad that Velcroed on. Right. Yeah, it, it didn't right. help anything. It, it was there just for looks. It made you feel like you were more of a gladiator or something. It, it really yeah, didn't and, I, and I, I actually still use those a lot because I don't use them much hunting, but I use them when I'm play when i call it playing when i'm stump shooting in the yard when i'm like if i'm generally i'll take an arrow and i just use one arrow at a time and i'll take that arrow and i'll go do all kind of crazy things i may take a shot i may see uh i may see a stump across my pond and i may try to hit that stump at 200 yards i mean i'll be angling up at the moon and i shoot from all kind of weird positions and even now, as long as I've been shooting a bow, occasionally when I get in some strange position, I'll slap that arm. So I tend to still wear those. The ones I have are actually pretty effective. <laughs> I'm going to bet yours are a little bit upgraded from what we had back then. But yeah, the ones we had back then, you're right. They were just they were just barely a step above useless. But man, having having a deer within 15 yards, 20 yards, 5 yards, I mean, that's, as a hunter, that to me is kind of the ultimate because to, you know, it's a game. It's it's one of the biggest games in the world. It's you against beast and it's, it's being one with nature enough that you can get one that close to you and still be able to, you know, like you say, not, you know, uh, staying at peace with the wrens. I mean, you've you've overcome everything. I mean, there's got to be so much satisfaction in that above just, you know, a normal 100-yard shot with a rifle. I mean, that you have a, you have gone six steps further to me and just made that so much cooler. I, I agree. That's why I do it. I do it because I love it. And it also, if when you get, when you've got... Well, let's take a, take a, a little doe. When you've got a doe in front of, as long as I've been doing this, I can, I can get close to a doe and my heart's about to jump out of my chest. I'm afraid she's going to hear my heart beating. And that's what you, you know, ultimately that's what we all want. And so it, it allows a, there's a certain natural visceral feel to it. And, I'll tell you one of the things I enjoy more than anything else is I don't shoot a lot of deer. 
you know, like, like this year, I'm, I'm going to hunt some more, but I probably won't kill anything else. But I bet you I'll draw on another 20 deer before this season's over. Now I'm not going to let the air go, but I'm just going to, you know, if I see a little four point, I draw on everything that I can draw on. If I see a four point, I'm drawing on him. And if I can get drawn, I feel that rush of could have had you. And it also gives you experience in picking spots because picking a spot is in traditional is, is probably where more people go wrong. And you, you, you've heard the, you've heard the old saying, aim small, miss small. You have to get fanatical with it. And I've been doing this so long. When I look at a pair of boots, when I look at a doorknob, when I look at a dog, when I look at anything, I'm picking spots. You know, I may, I may not have, may not have a bow within a hundred yards. It has nothing to do with the bow. It's just a habit of when you see something, you focus on something smaller than that thing. And it becomes almost an obsessive compulsive habit. And I've talked to other guys like me that shoot traditional bows a lot and they all fall into that same, they fall into that same thing. When they look at a stop sign, they're picking a spot on that stop sign. So traditional leads you to a, if you stick with it, it leads you to a almost a, I wouldn't say fanatical state, but it leads you to a different level of, of focus. Because if you don't get to where you, you know, you see so many people with compounds, they'll shoot right over their back or right under their belly. They're even with a compound and pins, you need to be picking a spot. You need to pick a spot shooting with a rifle. Not picking a spot with a rifle, you'll get excited and you will, your, your instinct at the moment of shot, a lot of people will gravitate to a horizontal line, which is going to be the back or the belly. So picking a spot is critical regardless of your weapon type. It's just for traditional archery, it's way more critical. Well, Travis, we're, we're running up to where we're going to have to cut this off in the next couple of minutes, but Tell everybody that's listening to this. Now, you've been doing this a long time. Mm-hmm. You've gotten where you're really good at it. How much failure did you run into before you started seeing success or where you could say, I've become better at this? When I started traditional bow hunting, I was very young in my early teens. And I went three or four years before I killed my first deer. And when I killed him, it was just pure luck in a bean field. I mean, I just got lucky. That's all there is to it. And then I went many more years that I didn't kill anything. I missed. The learning curve was, to say it was intense is an understatement. And I, I, I got into hunting with guns too, and I, I hunted with rifles, and I hunted with compounds. I didn't really, I, I began killing deer with traditional archery when I, probably in my late twenties. But I was nowhere, I still had a lot of things. I was, I was trying to hunt with traditional archery like I did with a compound. And it just, I'm not going to say it doesn't work. It didn't work for me. Until I kind of went outside the box and started hunting. First thing I did with traditional archery was I wanted to get up in a tree like I did with a compound. And I found nothing but failure there. And uh, 
So I didn't really start having success till I got on the ground. And then the learning curve there was intense. So no, it is, if, if you're trying to fill the freezer, this ain't the way. It's going to be, <laughs> that freezer's going to stay empty for a long time, more than likely. <laughs> Traditional archery is demanding, but it's also very rewarding. And, and the key to it, if anyone's listening to this and wants to start in traditional or hunting with a ghillie suit or anything like that is have fun. If at any point you're not having fun anymore, go do something else because that's what makes people, when you stop enjoying it, that's where you get into a position that you're not going to stick with it. Well, that was one thing I was going to ask. How frustrating was it? in the years where you didn't, you weren't having success? No. And I'll tell you why. It's because God gave me a little, a little genetic trait or tendency or whatever you want to call it in that I can, some of my greatest hunting memories are massive failures that I can think of right now. And a smile comes to my face, learn to enjoy the failure, learn to enjoy messing up and blowing the shot on the big book learn to enjoy being in the woods and if everything goes perfect and you get your deer great but don't make that the focus of why you're there or you're going to be disappointed most of the time learn to enjoy failure and look at it as a, as a learning you know the greatest teacher i've ever had is failure i can agree with that and some of the greatest stories i have are when things went wrong not went right Right. You know, yeah. I, yeah, I can, I've got a, I actually write stories. I'm trying to, I've been writing stories for a long time and usually I'll take a, a hunting story and I try to tell it in a manner to convey it through my eyes. And some of the best stories I have are where I didn't, I didn't get it right. Um, you know, actually the successful stories are often sometimes the most the most boring. <laughs> I can agree with that. I think most people can. Well, Travis, look, it, I have thoroughly enjoyed it, man, and we will have to get you back on some other time. But, folks, look, if you want to learn more about this or, it, Travis, you know, is it okay to tell everybody where they can find you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, y'all look up Travis Murray. He's on Facebook. You can look him up at uh, murraylandandhomes.com. But, if you've got land questions, you've got questions on habitat and management, you've got ghillie suit questions, reach out, you know, and, and I know Travis from, from visiting with him, he'll answer anything he can in his most honest way he can. So, uh, man, I have enjoyed it, and I appreciate you coming on. And, y'all, this has been another edition of Outdoor Country Talk. Thank you, and God bless. Well, ain't nothing like a southerner. Lord, to make you feel all right, I got the windows down. I got the radio on.